0: to a good story we generally don't like to know the ending. We don't want the story to be ruined for us. We don't want any spoilers. But knowing the end can change how we listen to the story. If we know certain characters take center stage we might pay more attention to them early on. There might be some sad moments but if we know how the story ends we can endure through the sadness for the joy to follow. We think knowing the end the story but in reality it gives hope and clarity when it comes to the story of redemption we get a glimpse of the end of that story it doesn't always make our present experience easier but it does give us hope when we understand that all sad things will become untrue when we know that our world is broken but that God is moving to restore and redeem get to know the end of the story and spoiler alert God wins
1: all right we're in the next section of Revelation so I'd like to invite you to grab your Bibles and turn to Revelation 2 now in my mind uh, letters have become incredibly special today like I can remember back over my life when the most special significant thing you could ever get was a text message it meant someone actually loved you because they were willing to sit, spend uh, five cents on you. Remember those days before everyone had unlimited texting? I also remember when getting a phone call was the most significant thing, like getting to talk to my grandma on the phone and, and enjoying those conversations back when like, you had to uh, call a friend and then spend a few minutes awkwardly talking to their parents before you could actually get to your friend. Today, it seems like most people are annoyed when they get a phone call, texting has become ubiquitous, and letters are incredibly special and dear to your heart, except for the ones from Anderson Windows that look like the special handwritten ones, and then you open them up and find out it's just an advertisement. Sorry, David and Brian. They work for Anderson Windows if you didn't know. So how would you feel if you got a signed letter from Jesus? Would you be excited or more on the nervous scale? Now, as we read through these letters, I think there's a tendency at times, like it's, it's, it's sometimes difficult for us to remember that these letters were written to real people who lived in a real place, who had real lives, who needed comfort and correction from the Lord, just like we do today. Now, what's even crazier, honestly, is we do have a number of letters written to us from God himself. We have 66 of them, and we call it the Bible. Every time we open it, God himself is speaking to us. Which means there's going to be times where we are challenged, there's going to be other times where we're comforted. That's true of of every relationship that you have ever been a part of. So I hope you have Revelation 2 by now. If you do, I invite you to stand with me as we read God's Word together this morning. Revelation 2, we're going to look at the first two churches, so verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna, Thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life, I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for ten days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. As you're seated, I'd invite you to once again please join me in a word of prayer. God, I thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the ways that you have written a letter to us and then preserved that letter throughout all of history down to where we can open it up and read it together today. I pray that as as we study and reflect on your letters to these two churches, that we would take note of, of where we need to be challenged, and then be comforted in the ways that only you can comfort us. God, we thank you that you have not left us trying to figure life out on our own. You have commanded and exhorted us in how we should live, how we should worship, how we should serve after you as the one true and living God. So we worship and praise you because of your sustaining providence in all of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing we need to do because we're starting a new section now in Revelation is, is see how all of these letters to the churches tie together. So I found this uh, overview or chart just a helpful summary of all of the characteristics of each one of the letters. Now, a couple, one thing that I, I just want to point out, we'll study one of these today, but you notice that there are two churches that have no correction and no need of repenting. Which is interesting, and and what's what's most interesting about that is those two churches are the most, uh, least successful in in terms of worldly uh, acclaim and and recognition. So first notice that these churches are all addressed. So seven churches, it's addressed to the angel. There's a connection back to Christ, as as we saw him in last week's text. There's a correction with the call to repent for five of the seven. There's a, a command to listen to what Jesus is saying, and then finally a promise on how to overcome So keep this chart in in mind as we continue working our way through these over the next few weeks. Now, one of the things that we're going to see as we continue walking through all these texts is the churches have a tendency to reflect or adopt both the positives and the negatives of the cities and cultures that they're in. And I would say that the same thing continues to happen today. Now, you may have heard the story of asking a fish what it's like to live in water, and the fish's response is, what's water? It's similar for us growing up. We all have all these assumptions about pretty much everything in our lives until we run into someone who lives differently than we do. But until then, we, we tend to not get challenged on any of those assumptions of what we have. Like one of the ones that uh, my cousins still make fun of me for to this day is uh, my mom, bless her heart, was trying really hard to train me and my sisters to be polite so when we were done eating, every time, no matter where we were at someone's house or, or uh, our own home, the, the phrase we had to say was, thank you, the food was very good, may I please be excused. Regardless of whether the food was good or not, that's what we said. But I got so good at it that it just like it became this rote repetition thing, thank you, it was very good, may I please be excused. Um, which my aunt thought was just cute and enduring and then would ask me to repeat it over and over and just all these, like, family lineage things. But I didn't know that was weird <laughs> until I started eating at other people's houses and I saw none of their kids doing it. And I pointed out to my parents one time and they said, yes, we're just training you to be much more polite than everyone else. Like, wow, training me to be judgmental from a very young age, Mom. She meant well. She meant very well. But we all have, have those things that, like, once we get married, we start seeing, oh, your family is weird. <laughs> Or, or, oh, my, maybe my family was the weird one. And, and even for today, like, it, it, I've had multiple conversations where people have said, you know, church today just isn't like it was when I was growing up. This is part of the reason why. All of us are impacted and influenced by our culture far more than we're even aware of. And some of it is that's okay. Acts seventeen twenty six, Paul says, from one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. See, all of us have appointed times. God has determined them from before he laid the foundations of the earth. And I've talked to a number of retired pastors who have shared with me that they're glad they're not ministering today because in their minds it's just so much more difficult than what they had when they were growing up and serving and ministering. That's okay. You don't need to. God called those pastors to a specific time and season just as he's called me to a specific time and season. And honestly, I am more hopeful about the future of the church today than when I first started 15 years ago. So as we walk through these letters to the churches, I want you to keep in mind that there are some things that will apply to us, there's things that will apply to other churches, and there's some that will just apply to the the churches that were written to. Remember, these letters were written first and foremost to these seven churches, but then they have application for the church throughout all of human history. Now we're going to spend a bulk of our time today looking at Ephesus, and part of that is because Ephesus is the church we know the most about in this entire list, so there was a, there's a book called Ephesians that we have studied together before, which was Paul writing a letter to this very church. We know a ton of what was happening at this church. So pull up this map once again. Remember Patmos over here, this island, is where uh, John is exiled to, and the first port that the letter would be sent to is Ephesus. So Ephesus was a major port city. In fact, it was the third biggest city in all of the Roman Empire. Uh, roads at this time in Asia, this is, this is referred to as the area of Asia, uh, did not go to Rome, they all went to Ephesus. Like, Ephesus was where everyone wanted to be. So that's why if you read through the book of Acts, it will describe Paul as having preached to the word to all of Asia. So this was a, a major commercial port, but in order to keep the port open, it required constant dredging. Because there was silt that would start impacting and influencing the harbor. And if it got too deep, then the boats wouldn't be able to come. And and it would literally ruin the economy of the city. And that eventually is actually what happened. So if you go visit the ruins of Ephesus today, it feels like it's so far away from the harbor because the harbor actually literally silted over. Because of this commerce, it was also home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. They had a temple to the Greek god Artemis. And if you've ever seen pictures of uh, the Parthenon in Rome, the one to Artemis was four times bigger than that. Now, Artemis was the god of fertility, magic, and astrology. Keep these things in mind. Like, remember what we just read about Jesus, who holds the stars in his right hand. Do you think it's a coincidence that Jesus describes himself as holding the stars in his hand when, when the primary god claims to be the god of astrology? Now, not only did, did Ephesus worship Artemis primarily, but all the significant cultural centers would also become centers of emperor worship, which is often referred to as imperial cults. Ephesus had three different temples dedicated to three different emperors. Now, the church at Ephesus had, had, had a bit of a history. It was founded by Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla. You can read about that in Acts 18 and 19. Paul was there for at least two years, most likely three Remember, he wrote a letter to them called Ephesians. We studied that a few years ago. If you want to go hear uh, me walk through and explain what Ephesians was about. But while Paul was there ministering, there was a riot against Paul because he was, ended up attacking, attacking and, and affecting their economic base. So if you get to Acts 19, you read about this silversmith named Demetrius who was incredibly offended at the, the message that Paul had brought. Like, if, if you remember all these things that were taking place at the church in, in Ephesus, what they did when they were saved is they literally threw away millions of dollars of their magical books. They just burned them in a fire because God had so transformed their hearts and their lives. But it wasn't this just them that it started affecting. It, it literally started affecting the economic base of the whole city, such that the silversmith stirs up a riot because he says, we are all going to go bankrupt if Paul's message continues going out. But I also think it's important, so after this riot, uh, things finally get calmed down, uh, Paul reminds the church to do something. So in Acts 20, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. That's Paul's last words to the overseers of the church at Ephesus. So keep that in mind as we look at, at Jesus' commendation and correction to them. The first thing that, that they are commended for is true orthodoxy. Now orthodoxy is a, just a fancy word that means true or right belief. So it's two words in Greek, orthos and doxos, which is, is like straight paths, as would be like a woodenly literal translation of that. So it, it's believing the right things. So Jesus begins this by by speaking to them. The one who holds the heaven stars in his hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now that is significant because it's a reminder that Jesus is there and present and engaged with this local church. Like he doesn't just command the church to go do something and then like stand back like some removed dictator. He's actively involved and engaged. He knows everything that is taking place among the church. So the encouragement that he has for them is he says, verse two, I know your works, your labor, your endurance, that you cannot tolerate evil people. You've tested those who call themselves apostles. You found them to be liars. You've persevered and endured hardships, yet you have not grown weary. So uh, uh, Eugene Peterson, in his book, Reversed Thunder, uh, goes through and summarizes all the positives and negatives of all the churches in here, and I love the way he summarizes this. He said that, that this church is encouraged for untiring, unflagging, and vigilant work. Now, part of what the, the, the ramifications of that is, says, tested those who have called themselves apostles. Think back to what Paul commanded them to do in Acts 20. He said, be careful, because there's going to be people that will try to mislead you, They will try to get you off of the true orthodox belief that, that Paul himself delivered to them. So then it would make sense that they would hold firm to the orthodox faith, that they wouldn't go back and forth, that no one would be able to to convince them to disbelieve all these things that Paul had convinced and taught them. But then we need to get to the second part, and that is the negatives about this church. Now, orthopraxy is just the way you live. So straight action, right action, right living, those kinds of ideas. So the correction that he has, starting in verse 4, he says, you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, abandoned is a pretty good translation of the Greek word because it, it's far more intentional than just like a slowly drifting away. Like if you've ever gone out to uh, the ocean, swimming in the ocean and, and you go out past the shore, start swimming a little ways and suddenly you look back at the beach and the beach has moved, right? Like your stuff was, was like 100 yards down the way and if you continue swimming, unless you actively move back, you just continue drifting away. That's not what, what Jesus is talking about here. So the word abandoned is like fleeing or literally running away From their first love. Again, Eugene Peterson, I think, summarizes this well. He says, abandoning their first zestful love of Christ. Now, there are a few debates about what this love is referring to, but I think we need to keep in mind the author of this book, and I think it will help shed some light for us on what he's referring to. The general um, debate is whether he's referring to the first love towards God, Jesus, or if they have missed a love towards others. So thankfully, John, who wrote Revelation, also wrote a book called The Gospel of John. We have three other letters that he wrote called 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And I looked it up this week just to try to get some comparison. The most uh, the book in the New Testament that uses the word love more than any other is the Gospel of John, with 39 times. The second most use of the word love is 1st John. See, it's a theme that is just coming through in the author who wrote these. So think of John 3.16. A verse many of you probably memorized as you were growing up. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Let's go to 1 John 3.14. He says, Little children, let us not love in word or speech but in action, in truth. 1 John 4.7, Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Finally, 1 John 4.11, Dear friends, If God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. John is saying you can't separate these two loves out. If you actually and truly love God, you will actually and truly love your brothers and sisters in the church. And I think Jesus even talks about this in in Matthew 22. He's asked, what is the the great commandment? Now, I've I've preached on this before, so if if you don't remember this, they, they had a hierarchy of all the laws and commandments in the Old Testament and uh, it was considered like heavy or weightier and less heavy or lighter commandments, like which ones do you really have to obey and which ones can you kind of skirt around with? So when, when Jesus is asked what is the great commandment, here's how he replies. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. Second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All The law and the prophets depend. He uses a word like hang on. So every other piece of the commands that come, hang on these two commands. So what Jesus is saying here is if you actually love God, you will also love your neighbor just like you love yourself. So Jesus is telling this church here that it's not enough just to have correct theology. In fact, we know from James 2.19 that those who have the best theology are going to spend eternity in the lake of fire. James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. So a summary, a way you could summarize what Jesus commands here in Matthew 22 is we are commanded to love God supremely and love others sacrificially. See, it's not enough for us to just like mentally agree with some truth claims. Those truth claims are actually meant to soak themselves deeply into your life and change the way you live, including your emotional life. So the way you could summarize this church is that they've become so committed to right beliefs that they've neglected to love God or love other people. They've forgotten what Jesus commanded here in the Great Commandment. Now, uh, think of how many heresy hunter organizations exist today. I went, uh, just because I was interested, I went looking on what's called the evangelical dark web today. Ken, I feel like that's one you would look at. (laughs) All you have to do, though, is pull up YouTube and look for discernment ministries, and you will like, be overwhelmed about how many people will claim to be heresy hunters. Now, I'm not saying true belief doesn't matter. It matters greatly, but you cannot divorce that from the way that we live. These two things cannot be separated, and I think this reality is something that we as a church need to be wary of. Like, I'm honestly not worried about us drifting away from the truth. In this room right now, we have more seminary degrees than some seminaries offer. What I do worry about is becoming so determined to hold on to the truth that we neglect Jesus' command to love others too. Now, this actually has uh, affected the EFCA pretty significantly over the past couple years as well. There's a pastor who was hired at a church in New Jersey who claims to be an expert in theology and to have a prophetic gift from God. Uh, Thus far, he's written three books— denouncing the EFCA, this is his words, as woke, Marxist, and social justice warriors. Woke, Marxist, and social justice warriors. All three books were written before talking or consulting with anyone that he was complaining about or writing against. He was given multiple opportunities to repent. He was called out from multiple people for a lack of clarity, a lack of charity, and a lack of grace towards others, and at some, time, some moments, he literally lied about things people said. Now, if you only listen to his side, like many of the YouTube comments do, It sounds like he was doing the right thing. But if you talk to those that have tried to engage him, it becomes clear that there is no love. And he only wants to care about and filter everything through the lens of what he would define as true beliefs. So all this actually led to and and culminated in in, the EFCA releasing a, a statement called Where We Stand in the EFCA Denials and Affirmations. I encourage you to look it up. I'm actually going to be teaching a class through it um, after we finish the current class that, that we're walking through. Just some really helpful things of how do we, as Christians, engage the world that we live in today. Now, it's not just this guy. There are whole organizations devoted to the idea that we need to stand firm and fight for the truth or else the whole world is going to fall down around us. Do you really think that's our job? Like, Think of the God that we worship, the creator and sustainer of the entire universe. Do you think God is so dependent on us fighting for Him that if we don't stand up, His plans are going to fail? No. My encouragement to you is, is be careful about those organizations that only want to fight. Yes, I'm all for standing firm for the truth. But don't forget to look at the fruit of those who are leading some of these organizations. Hold their lives up to Galatians chapter 5. Like you know, uh, Galatians 5, we often talk about the fruit of the Spirit. We even have a fun song that our Awana kids sing about it. But we, we, at times, like, gloss over some of the expectations of what would be considered works of the flesh. Like we focus on the sexual immorality, the moral impurity, promiscuity. But look at some of the things in this list. Outbursts of anger. Do you ever see anyone in some of those uh, heresy-hunting organizations that have some outbursts of anger? What about selfish ambitions? Trying to build a platform, create a following. What about someone who, who stirs dissensions and factions? Did you know that dissensions and factions are literally the marks of the flesh and not the spirit? Like, Jesus has called us to pursue unity, not factions and division. Like, if you hear someone that, that comes along and says, "Whose side are you on on a, a not a significant issue of theology?" just turn the other way. It's not worth spending time on. So as we think about this, church, do not miss this reality. Those that want to constantly fight and divide are not a part of God's kingdom. What they are manifesting is the works of the flesh. Now, it's important to note, correct theology doesn't mean you get into heaven. Your life must bear fruit. Now, always remember, keep in mind, what we want to hear Jesus say to us when we finally see him face to face is, well done, good, and faithful servant. All of us, when when we get to heaven, are going to be surprised about some area of our theology that is heresy. All of us. Like, if we all had perfect theology, <clears throat> we would be in, in heaven. Now, that doesn't mean that you give up on learning and studying. It just means make sure that the, the learning and the studying that you're doing is actually being lived out. Now, I thought of a couple of people, just, just <clears throat> people that have been helpful for me, whose life has been marked more by the works of the flesh than the works of the Spirit. Like, uh, A.W. Tozer was apparently a bit of a jerk of a man, um, after, like, and I, I, I have read his stuff, his knowledge of the holy is one of my like, most quoted references that I've ever come across. Um, he says, the most important thing about any of us is, is what we think about when we think of God. Like, that's beautiful. And he, he had this, this in, insight and way with words that is super helpful. But uh, he accepted a job, he was living in like North Carolina or something like that, accepted a job in Chicago and moved there. And then after he had moved there, he wrote a letter to his wife telling her that he had moved to Chicago and expected her to come and join him. I don't know many wives that would have willingly gone along with that. Um, and, and so when, after he died, his, his wife was asked, like, what is it like being married to a different man? And, and she said, A.W. Tozer loved God, but my new husband loves me. That's, that's a <clears throat> bit of a detriment against him. Or I think of a more recent one of Ravi Zacharias. I've been so benefited by a lot of his writings and his apologetic ministry, but then it comes out at the end that he's been pursuing moral impurity, promiscuity, all these things, these divisions. Like, It's not enough just to believe the right thing. It's, you actually have to live a different way. Now, I think it's important for us to look at how Jesus commands them, this church, to respond. So look at verse 5. It begins by saying, remember how far you have fallen. Repent, and do the works that you did at first. Now, I got coffee with someone this week and, and chatted about how forgetful we are. <laughs> like, even when God has done literal miracles in our lives of, of providing or, or healing for us, we just forget and move on. Like that is completely normal for humans. But that's part of the reason God constantly tells us to remember, remember, remember. But it's not just enough to remember. It says, remember, and then repent, and then go back and do the things that you used to do the word that that is translated repent in our Bibles is actually a literal 180. Like you're going one direction and you completely turn around and go the other way. Live the way that you should have been living originally. Now one of the joys that comes about from reminders like this is it's never too late to repent. Until Jesus returns or calls you home, it is never too late to repent. But if this church doesn't go back to their first love, look what Jesus threatens. I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What this is saying is by Jesus removing their lampstand, they would cease to be a church. Sure, they could continue meeting, they could continue trying to pursue certain aims, but in Jesus' mind, they are no longer a church. What this tells us is if we have all the right theology but have not love, we stop functioning as a true church. Now, this idea actually fits in with the concern of the city as well. Remember the constant dredging that they did to remove the silt from the harbor? There's this constant fear that the city would stop being a city because they were completely dependent on the harbor for all of their economic growth. Similarly, the church needs to fear no longer being a church unless they actually dredge up the sin in their lives and deal with it. Now, uh, John Jesus makes an interesting comment on the Nicolaitans, which they will come up again in next week's message. I don't have time to dig into them today, so we will save them for next week. But the other thing that I want to point out about this, if you look at verse 7, suddenly, after Jesus has been focusing all his attention on this church, he broadens it out to anyone. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, this theme is going to run rampant through all of them, to the one who conquers. Um, So that word conquer, uh, what Grant Osborne says about that is, in the eschatological war, to be a conqueror demands a day-by-day walk with God independence on his strength. Now this conquering comes about from the sword, or, sorry, yes, the sword of the spirit, not the sword of power and influence. You see that? It comes about by God's word, not by us pursuing or trying to grab onto power. And then the last thing it says, we'll give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. This is an intentional contrast again with the local deity of Artemis. So uh, Brian Tabb in his commentary on this says, this promise also counters the popular expectations that Artemis, the patron deity of Ephesus, offered life and fertility to those who worshiped at her tree shrine. Jesus is saying, you can go there all you want. You're not going to find the life that you're looking for until you finally come to me. Now we get to Smyrna. As uh, Micah has been referencing since we started this, Smyrna, the synagogue of Satan. That's what they're called called in here. So we've been at Patmos, we've looked at Ephesus... Now we're about 35 miles north in Smyrna. Smyrna had a, a history of dying and being brought back to life as a city. Like it, it's, it's right at a, a really pivotal point in Asia, so there were many times that, that uh, invaders would come and just completely destroy the city and then have it rebuilt over and over. Smyrna is also the only city in this entire list that still exists today as Izmir, Turkey. Now, uh, Smyrna is another uh, harbor city. Its uh, claim to fame was there the birthplace of the poet Homer, And uh, Smyrna was was another prominent location. They had temples to all sorts of different gods and emperors. And they also had an Acropolis that was referred to as the crown of Smyrna. Now, every city had their own little uh, currency that that would be used to buy things. The local currency in Smyrna had written on it, first of Asia in beauty and size. So very well-respected, well-known Roman outposts, but they also had a large and influential Jewish population who had access to economic and cultural power in the city. Which means the Christians in Smyrna faced oppression from both Jews and Romans in the city. So they were left out economically, they were banned from shopping in the marketplaces, but these were only one of two churches that didn't receive any rebuke from Jesus. So Jesus begins by talking to them about true riches. Verse 8 Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Thus says the first and the last. So remember, Smyrna claimed to be the first of Asia. Jesus is not just the first, (laughs) he's also the last. Smyrna has nothing on Jesus. He was the one who was dead and came to life, just like the city of Smyrna. He says, I know your affliction and your poverty, but that's not how he sees them. He says, you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So Jesus is showing his divinity here. Remember, he holds the keys to death and Hades in his hands. Like Not even death itself can stand against Jesus. So Jesus, again, because he stands in the lampstands, he sees everything that's going on. He sees the the way that they're afflicted, the material poverty that they face, but he reminds them that is not the reality spiritually. So even if the church faces being social outcasts, even if the church lacks material needs, Jesus is still among them. I think that this tells us we might need to change some of what we view to be a successful church. Now, I've heard it described as either 3Bs or the ABCs of church growth. You've got buildings, budgets, and butts, or you've got adults, buildings, and cash. But what if, according to what this text is saying, those churches that are are most wealthy materially are most impoverished spiritually, Jesus uses a different standard. He has a completely different metric for what he's, he's using. And, and Jesus again says, I know exactly what's going on. So you have this affliction and poverty. poverty. You also are facing slander. The, the church is just feeling oppression from both sides. Now, it's important to note verse 9 is not an anti-Semitic statement. If you didn't know, Jesus was a Jew. The early disciples were Jews. But he is saying something new and unique is now taking place. So when Jesus is confronted by uh, some Jewish leaders, he says this in John 8, You are of your father the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature, because he is a liar and the father of lies. Because Jesus has come, suddenly genealogy doesn't matter anymore. Anyone can become a follower of the one true God. So when Jesus goes on to describe them as a synagogue of Satan here, he's just saying they they are submitting, they are serving, they are following their father, Satan, who can only lie. They don't see, recognize, and acknowledge that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So let me just summarize all of this. This verse is not anti-Semitic, and using it to argue that is a gross misinterpretation. So this church, who was true, rich in the spiritual realm, also was guaranteed to face true suffering. Remember, that's the one thing Jesus actually promises us, is in this world you will have suffering or tribulation or persecution. Jesus guarantees it. So he says, don't be afraid about what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you. You will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death. and That will give you the crown of life. So 10 days here is most likely not a literal amount of time. Uh, Most likely it picks up on an idea from Daniel chapter 1, where beginning of Daniel, uh, Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who you've probably heard about in the fiery furnace, are asked to uh, adopt the Babylonian uh, way of eating. Um, And so Daniel argues and debates and and comes to a a consensus with the people that were overseeing him, And, and Daniel says, please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. He agreed with them about this and tested them for 10 days. Same terminology that we see in Revelation. At the end of 10 days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. Um, This one's not in my notes. This is just a freebie for you. Anyone that tries to argue that you should follow the Daniel diet to try to lose weight is misreading that text because the last verse actually says they gained weight by the diet that they were pursuing. So don't try to adopt a Daniel diet if you're trying to lose weight and claim to be biblical. That's a misinterpretation of that word. So what John is doing here in Revelation is picking up on that idea for 10 days. It's saying some indeterminate amount of time you will be tested. But then his command is, is what I said earlier. Like what we want to hear when, when we finally see Jesus is well done, good and faithful servant. So if you remain faithful, even in the midst of, of suffering, what you'll get is not the crown of Smyrna, you'll get the crown of life. Now this promise is again to those who conquer, those who overcome, those who persevere. It says the second death will never, will never hurt you. Now second death is, is uh, referred to again multiple times throughout Revelation, so uh, we will be reading and studying those ideas again in the future, but it's referring to the lake of fire. So almost to guarantee that if you live long enough before Jesus returns, you will die. Like, mortality rate is still hovering right at about 100%. Um, I know that's not cheery or happy to think about, but that's the reality. Um, like, at some point, death will catch up to you, but you have a decision to make on whether or not you will be harmed by the second death. So the one who conquers is, again, the one who, who is remaining faithful, who is being obedient to God step by step, who is walking with Him. And we'll, we'll see that again as we continue going through this, this book in Revelation. But what's incredible, um, at least I think it's incredible, is this promise that was given to Smyrna was actually, kind of came to fruition just a few decades later when their bishop was burned at the stake. And he may have even been in the church when this letter was read to him. Uh, So a guy named Polycarp uh, in the the second century of the church was the bishop of Smyrna. Um, He was asked to recant his beliefs in Jesus as the one true God. And I love this phrase. His response was, "...86 years have I served Jesus, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me?" So the person who was interrogating him then goes on, says, "...I have wild beasts. I shall throw you to them if you do not change your mind." Polycarp responded, "...call them. For repentance from the better to the worse is not permitted us, but it is noble to change from what is evil to what is righteous? So the proconsul, the ruler, responded, "I shall have you consumed with fire if you despise the wild beasts unless you change your mind." Polycarp said, "The fire you threaten burns but an hour and is quenched after a little. For you do not know the fire of the coming judgment and everlasting punishment that is laid up for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Come, do what you will." Now, according to church tradition, when they actually lit him on fire, he didn't die fire didn't work. So they actually had to come over and stab him with a sword, and then finally Polycarp died. But Polycarp would have understood exactly what was ha- happening here, what, exactly what was taking place. And for us today, are we willing to face those kinds of threats? Are we willing to face that kind of persecution? Or maybe not that kind of persecution, but Smyrna with the, the loss of social standing, if on the other side we get the crown of life? Remember, part of the reason that we're studying Revelation is because we're promised a blessing that comes by hearing, receiving, and keeping the words that are in here. So if we remain faithful unto death, then the blessing that comes from Jesus is the crown of life. Would you please pray with me? God, we thank you for your provision for us. All the ways that you have, have created and call us to yourself. Thank you for appointing the times and the seasons and the places where where we should live and move and have our being. We praise you that you are faithful. Even when we are faithless, even when we get focused and fixated and and our minds wrapped up on the wrong things, you continue pursuing and loving and drawing us to yourself. So I pray now that that we would be faithful even to the point of death. I'm reminded of, of Hebrews which says, in our fight against sin, we have not yet suffered to the point of shedding blood. But God, if we do have to face suffering to the point of shedding blood, I pray that you would prepare us and help us to remain faithful. God, I thank you that you have given us the crown of life, that the second death will not touch us, the second death will not hurt us. Instead, we get to spend eternity with you, worshiping, honoring, and praising you as the King and Savior of all of the universe. So we now thank you that everything that happens here is only according to your sovereign plan. We pray that we as, as your people, as, as the church here, that you would help us to remember our first love and continue pursuing faithfulness through everything that we go through. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.